Hello, Synergy Autism listeners. I'm glad you're here. You are in for a serious treat today with this first podcast back after quite a while. I had an opportunity to dive into the topic of inclusion with two fabulous visionaries in our world today, Dr. Christy Preddy Franzak and Dr. Julie Costin. And Dr. Preddy Franzak calls herself an inclusion thought leader, and I could not agree more. And Dr. Costin calls herself a magical inclusion expert. Again, couldn't agree more. They are both actively guiding and advocating for both students and schools to make inclusion happen through, they do this through professional development and partnering with school districts. We in this conversation get into the beauty of inclusion and how possible it is for all students, regardless of their special needs. When we focus on joy, students' potentials, the social justice of it all, and how Basically, the abundance of research is demonstrating that inclusion is absolutely the way to go. We dive into how we need to include first, rather than wait till a student is quote unquote ready. And if after you hear our chat today on this podcast, you want more, Christy and Julie are hosting a fab, fantastic, fabulous, fantabulous School Inclusion Opportunity, and it is called SLI 2023 Metamorphosis, and I really highly recommend that you check it out. I'll make sure to have the links in the show notes, and if there's anything I can do to help you connect with them for yourself, for your district, for your child, for somebody you know, just let me know. Listen in. Again, you're in for a treat. Okay. So hello, hello, Christy and Julie. I'm so happy that you're here today. I've been really looking forward to having you on this Synergy Autism podcast. Yay. So (laughs) the two of you are experts in working with schools to figure out these, uh, how to include children with extremely varying learning differences as you guys know, and I am strongly in favor of including autistic people and students uh, and uh, know very well that that can be, have mixed reviews, right? Mm -hmm. For including kids who have some challenging behaviors, if you want to use that term. Um, And so I would really just love to hear like, why did you focus on this? What, where are you coming from to um, ensure the inclusive schooling that you talk about and that you, um, you love so much and I want to hear more. So who are you and tell us a little bit more about, uh, inclusive schooling. Yeah. I'll let you start Julie and I'll just preface it Barb with that. We often talk about that we differentiate our why. And so why do we come to inclusive education or why do we see inclusive education as the way? And Julie and I have a little bit different, um, of a journey, those very similar, and we have a little bit different of what feeds our why. So mm-hmm. it'll, it's complementary, but a little different. So, all right, Julie, you want to talk about how you got on this passionate kick and uh, your why? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'd love to. So really happy to be here, Barb. I think um, my why started, uh, I've worked with children my whole life. And I quickly saw that there were these lines drawn between kids with disabilities and kids without. Mm -hmm. And I, um, when I started doing student teaching and things like that, there were rooms down the hall where you would hear noises or things, but you didn't know who was there and what was going on. And I became curious right away about those classrooms. Um, and then in my own work with Ann Donnellan at UW Madison, um, one of our assignments was to do some sort of a bus trip where we were uh, bowling coaches for people with disabilities. And it was my first real experience. And it was five minutes into the bus trip. And I was like, I was wrong about everything I ever thought about individuals with significant disabilities. Hmm. These are the funniest, most brilliant. I mean, (laughs) I was just having a blast. And all of a sudden I was like, 
but why am I in a bus of a bunch of people with disabilities? And why is this my first opportunity? And what was my schooling like? And I started to kind of think backwards. Anyway, I got a degree in education and it was an inclusive education. And then I was a special ed teacher for many years, uh, K-12. And it's just been my, I think it's like you, Barb, it's like the fire in your belly. It's hard to sleep at night when you know of another way yeah. um, that's possible for individuals with significant support needs and individuals with autism. Um, and then, so since then, all I've done in my life is um, help schools become more inclusive for all students. And uh, so fantastic. Yeah. You know what I love so much about what you're saying too, Julie, is just the realization that kids are kids. And there's so much joy in childhood that is lost when we have, you know, the othering that we see. That's right. Yeah. So Christy, what is it that, okay. So you said that your why is a little bit different. So share, what is your, what, how did you come to all of this? Yeah. And I think the part that, um, you'll see that's a little different and Julie didn't kind of glossed over all of her years of uh, research and all of the court cases that she's sat in on and testified mm -hmm. for and won because the law and research really drives her. It's like, you know, when, you know, you're an academic to um, Barb and you love to read and study and, and we all three share that. And so mm -hmm. uh, Julie, not to speak for you, but you often will tell people that you are convinced or you come back to your why because of the insurmountable research that we have. Is that the word? The tremendous amount of research that we have. And then of course, in the United States, the legal underpinnings that support inclusion. So for me, while I love all of that and believe all of that, and it does fuel me, it's really a social justice issue, which you kind of hinted on today, Julie. So it was much more of like, this is inequitable. Like, why is there a classroom down the hall? Or why do we all have to be a bus ride with this particular identity? Why couldn't we have met 20 years ago? So, yes. so maybe more overlap than I originally set it up for, but um you know, and Barb, you know, my, my journey and much like Julie, it took five minutes of seeing inclusion and, or being around people with disability labels for me to go, that is my vocation. That is my calling. I didn't know it like Julie growing up. I did not have interactions either in my family or in my school or in my community with people with disability labels and went to school, not even really knowing what I wanted to have as a vocation, mm -hmm. but did know I didn't think I wanted to be a teacher, um, mostly because I thought that was like the only option, not because I wasn't really called to it early in my life. Um, as you know, Barb, I've taught swimming lessons since I was 12. So it's like, you know, yeah. so when I went to graduate school, that's where Barb and I met at the University of Oregon. And um, what led me to Oregon was a practicum in a child development center with kids, only kids with significant disabilities um, from birth to maybe four, maybe three or four. Um, and I keep you know, I reflect often about like what I loved about it because it was so self-contained and so many lines and so medical model, but I know what I loved about it was, um, just learning about these amazing kids and families and like Julie always loved kids, always loved working with families. And it was like, Hey, what, this is not any different than the kids I babysit for other than you might need, you know, a G tube feeding at noon you know? And so I also was just lucky to go to the university of Oregon where I was mentored into this way of like, it was the only way for us. Wouldn't you say Barb, like we didn't question if it would be an inclusive program. No. It just was head start, childcare, everything. And yep. then when I moved to Ohio and I was faculty at Kent, I was trying to find practicum placements for my students and I could not find an inclusive preschool to save right. my soul. Right. And I couldn't understand it. I was like, what, why, why? And this was 1997. And I was thinking, how outdated are we? And then, you know, like Julie just fueled me from a social justice perspective mm. for decades. And then um, for the last three years, Julie and I have had the great, I don't know what you call it, uh, pleasure, privilege, maybe. privilege, honor, <laughs> 
um, for, I don't know, just great gift from wherever to work together <laughs> and to combine those passions and to combine our um, decades of thinking and advocating and researching and working alongside to really think about uh, inclusion. And I would just end it with not just inclusion, because, you know, I don't have a disability label as an identity. Um, so mine aren't lived experiences. They're just sort of alongside people and families that I've learned with. And it's always, um, we don't always say inclusion with support, or we don't always say inclusion in a place that you want to belong and feel like you belong. We just say inclusion, but right. behind that, we mean a place that accepts all of your identities, mm -hmm. a place that supports you no matter what those identities are. So I would say that that's like the context that we bring this work to. Mm -hmm. um, and Julie can share her identities as we go, but um, just acknowledging that, that, that that's the lens. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is, so just my background, because Julie, you probably don't know my background as well, but so I've been just, uh, so incredibly curious about autism for, since I was, you know, 17 years old. And so it, and you know, what's happened in the autism world is that to be most respectful to the child, we thought we were doing things right by teaching to this you know, behavioral, uh, standard that now, I mean, I'm, I'm completely questioning, right. And that we thought we were doing the best thing. And so I was a teacher in some of these segregated classrooms and thought I was doing the best thing I was supposed to be doing. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And it hasn't been until, you know, the last few years that I've been saying, oh my gosh, this is, it is a social justice issue. Mm -hmm. And it we're we're excluding kids and thinking that it's the the best for them. I mean, but that's what we did in why we put people in, into institutions, right? Which we debunked in the '90s, right? And we figured out how to. But it's so bizarre because even ADA and all of the things that we've gone through, it's like we have we're still so behind with kids with autism, mm -hmm. so behind. All right, but. What I love, and I want to keep coming back to, is how much I love about your both of your approach, that you bring not just you need to do this, you have to do this, this is social justice, et cetera, which is all true, but mm -hmm. you bring this amazing energy that is joyful and that it's a benefit to everyone, which, you know, you even hear, you know, you hear that from classroom teachers. Well, but parents aren't going to like this other kid because it's going to distract them from their, you know, learning and so on and so forth. And I'm sure you've heard so much of that. And so I would just really like to dive into inclusion of autistic children in particular, if you're, <laughs> since that's, that's the podcast is synergy, yeah. of course, <laughs> but um, yeah. So I guess I'm going to ask a big question. Why is inclusion of autistic children important? So it's important because kids with autism are the least included population of students mm -hmm. in schools systematically. Mm -hmm. um, it's important because we're wrong about the skills and abilities of children with autism meaning we have for so long made big mistakes about how capable and what's possible. And we really assumed things like uh, if they did engaged in parallel play, they weren't interested in connection. Right. And we made, we made all these assumptions that were false, mm -hmm. just one after the other, after the other. And we designed programs based on these false assumptions. And now we know differently because we are friends with, know and talk to and support and uh, love many, many people with autism. And they tell us that we were wrong again and again and again and again and again through their example, through their words, through their typed sentences, through all of it. We're like, oh, we were wrong. Yeah. So I think um, it's the last place that we have to think in school systems. So many times Christy and I will be working in a school system and they'll say, yes, 
we're going to be all inclusive, all inclusive. No, there's a room just for kids with autism. You know what I mean? But except them. And that for us is just sort of mind blowing because you want to start there. Yep. You want to start there, right? That's where you want to start. If you're going to do school-wide work, you start with that classroom and you figure out who those humans are, what their interests are, how to get them in general education settings. And then the rest of the, the job of a school system becoming inclusive is surprisingly easy because it's like, oh, if we did it for Adam, we can do it for so-and-so if we did it for, right? And uh, so- I just got tears in my eyes. Yeah. And so that's just, it's the place to start in many cases. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love that. Let's start there. I mean, that's, you know, so many of us go to any issue that's hard. We put it aside, you know? Well, and even my saying that it's hard, it isn't hard, right? And so tell me like, what are, okay. So I have so many questions. So um, one is, I'm going to back up a little bit. You said that we've been wrong. I agree with you. Christy agrees with you. Um, But I would bet that when you walk into schools and districts and things like that, that um, because I've gotten it, even as an autism specialist all these years that, oh no, these kids are different. You don't know what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what do you say to that? Show them research. <laughs> Tell them talk to autistic adults. <laughs> well, I mean, sort of all that, Barb. So a couple things. So like when I said differentiate your why, that persists. So when you meet resistance, then we go, okay, do you need to see the research? Do you need to see the law? Do you need to see a personal story? Do you need to see mm-hmm. district-wide data? Do you need advocacy, right? So yes, all, to all that. Um, I would also say if they said, well, they're different, I would say, that's right. They are different, meaning every human is different. And I'm not trying to universalize their different support needs or anyone's support needs. It's just that I would say, instead of saying it's hard, I'd say it's complicated. Sure. And so it's complicated trying to be um, a person or a system that is equitable for all. It's complicated to uh, be neurotypical and understand something you've never experienced that might be considered neuroatypical. Mm-hmm. It's it's perspective taking. It's it's doing your best and then doing repair when you've done some harm mm-hmm. and not persisting because of our own internal beliefs. So that's not practical, but it's at a theoretical level or at a conceptual level in terms of change is that, um, you know, we're all different. And as Julie often says, is disability is just a form of human diversity. And so acknowledging it, accepting it, and then saying, yep. And we have to account for that range. We have to account for the differences and plan with those ranges and differences in mind. It's just a different approach to thinking about education. Mm -hmm. Julie, what would you add to that? Well, I was just going to extend the concept of difference. Uh, Disability is just human difference and that we aren't comfortable um, saying any other group of kids would be okay to segregate or separate. So if we talk about race, we, we, we no longer would say, oh, I have an idea. Let's put all the black kids here, all the white kids here, all the brown kids here. Let's right. That's not okay. It's not acceptable. It's long, 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 never was okay, but people wouldn't say it, uh, today. And yet it's, it's totally comfortable for people to say, oh, but they need something different and special. And Julie, I would just add to that. We still do sort and separate by race. We just do it at a bigger level, a little less overtly through redlining, through voting, through. Mm, Good point. Yeah. All that stuff. So yes, but we don't say that we're doing it. And so the difference is we'll overtly say we are putting kids with autism together and we have no qualms about it. In fact, we have a general consensus that that is the right thing to do. So that's the distinction that we go all the way to um, saying it out loud and promoting it uh, actively and visibly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But keep going, Julie. I just wanted to differentiate that there are still lines by their identities. 
Yeah, of course. And so the other thing I was thinking is the complexity. It's kind of complex in the way that educating all human beings is complex. complex. Yeah. But the complexity for me is the unlearning Mm -hmm. and dealing with the shame of doing things in ways that might've caused harm. So when we're working with school systems and they had a segregated program for kids with disabilities and we're helping to un uh, do that and really integrate kids back into general ed settings, um, there's a lot of emotion behind, you know, educators who thought they were doing what was right for kids, or at least believed some on some level that, that what they were doing was right. And then the other part is once it's happening, I'd say it's less complex than it seems. Yeah. Even when you were saying about the complexity, I'm like, you know, so many times in my career, I'm approached because like, this is so complex. This is such a hard situation. And then I go, yeah, but it's a kid. Yeah, It's a child mm-hmm. who needs everything, the same things. It's not that complex. Everybody has complex issues and whether it's autism, I mean, never just autism anyway, like it's autism and, you know, socioeconomic factors or, you know, um, other. Well, I think that's what I mean by complex is that we as humans are complex humans. Absolutely. You know, like the way we think, the way our bodies work, for goodness sake, the differences in how I'm going to metabolize my breakfast versus how you metabolize yours, how things taste to me versus you. Like, that's what I mean is the variety is just like unknowable. And so it's just, I mean, I think for this, your followers, Barb, and for you, you find tons of curiosity in that variability. You look for the patterns, you see more similarities than differences. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think that all people um, have that lens. And so part of the complexity is doing the work that, you know, you're doing and that Julie and I do is to like, where can we find the patterns? Where can we simplify? Where can we see what's common and build upon that? We always talk about if we're going to change something, what's going to stay the same. So all of those principles, um, I would even say if you are in a te- listening and you've taught or are teaching in a self-contained classroom, or let's say you have advanced training in uh, the teach approach or in applied behavior analysis or something like this. It's also not an either, or it's not that all applied behavior analysis or all teach or all direct instruction, or let's just say all constructivist or all Maria Montessori or all play-based. If you say all of it is bad or all of it is good, we're just upholding the white dominant culture's fascination with the binary It can Mm -hmm. be both and it could be, I don't want to draw a line and put you in your own classroom, but there are some practices that I can embed into the general ed classroom that provides support. So I think that's part of the complexity for me is what do you hold on to bring with and what do you run away from or leave behind? Mm -hmm. All of that is, uh, you know, a process. Well, and I think kind of back to, undoing things that we've done specifically with autistic students is that um, we've, we've decided that certain, you know, we've put kids in silos because they only learn this way, which we would never do with any human. Right. Right. And so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely in favor of what you're saying of, of it's complex of what you, how to choose based on that, what person, what that person needs rather than it needs to just be this way. Yeah. And then I can predict it or write a program for it without having met you. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That's another podcast. Um, (laughs) All right. So this, uh, this may be obvious, but I don't think it will be obvious to everyone who's maybe listening to this is when do you recommend that inclusion starts? Birth. Especially for, you know, I'm thinking about autistic individuals, yeah. right? Birth. Yeah. I mean, it, it never, it, I guess it's just always part of the fabric. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people use the readiness model. This is an old fashioned way of thinking too. Oh. Like when they're ready to, play when they're ready to behave, when they're ready to yeah. walk, when they're ready to run, then, then, then we'll include. But the thing is 
all the really good learning opportunities are missed while we're waiting for them to be quote unquote ready. And so, um, I, for parents, we often talk to families about, uh, when to fight for inclusion and the time to fight for inclusion is the minute that they're told that their child should be in a segregated classroom. That's the time. Mm-hmm. Um, because we know what happens. We know there's a 0.001 return rate. It means kids usually go one direction, meaning in a more, um, well, a less inclusive way every time they get a new placement. And so we've got to think about how do we advocate at that moment when, and if, uh, families are being told that their children need to be in a segregated classroom. Absolutely. You know, speaking of parents and families, one thing that I have learned from one particular family that I adore who has fought for inclusion and is it, it's, it's a continual fight to be honest, which is also heartbreaking, but is the, the joy that inclusion has brought, not just for the child, but for the whole family, Mm -hmm. they are included And I think that we don't think about inclusion as being the whole family being included in a community of a school of homeschool, rather than having to have their kid bust across town to another segregated classroom because they serve kids better than in their inclusive, you know, their homeschool. I mean, just the joy to bring that. I keep saying that word just because I love it so much. And I love that they, that you do that, but the joy it's brought for the whole family. And I don't know if you talk about that or if there's any research around that, but just, it's not just about the child and the student. And I would extend the joy to everyone in that classroom and the school and mm-hmm. the principals, right? So what I find is once we get over the hump of change, so let's, let's, no matter what your school system is doing right now, if you imagine right now that they become fully inclusive, meaning there's no spaces or places for kids with disabilities to reside in any way, shape or form. Mm -hmm. And, and that's just sort of a base level meaning. We have a lot of a deeper meaning to inclusion, but that's just what I want you to look, think about Mm -hmm. is if, when you get to that point and now it's just the creative question of how do I make sure this science unit really works for this student who doesn't use verbal speech yet? Mm -hmm. And then it becomes, how do I figure out what to do when this student needs to move around more than they're giving an opportunity in English class. Mm -hmm. And all those things become this like creative problem solving that ends up because it's so generative and because it ends up making things better for all the kids in the classroom, you'll have a happier school community as well. Mm -hmm. So it is the family, it is the individual, it's all the peers. And then it's ripples out from there. Well, and Barb, we can link to it in the show notes, but we have a, Julie has a PBS video. It's called Because of Oliver, and it illustrates in about six minutes how that ripple effect. And so it's a, I'll kind of spoiler alert, but um, the, I, the play on it is, so the name of it is Because of Oliver. And at the end, all of the kids had a better learning experience, more fun, more joy, and then all because of Oliver. So Oliver has a diagnosis of autism, was in a self-contained classroom. Now he's in an inclusive classroom. And it really illustrates that ripple that Julie just described. So that might be something that um, your listeners would like to share. It's free. They can share it with anyone that they're trying to differentiate their why or explain why inclusion would benefit kids with and without disabilities. It's a short video that families could play at IFSP or IEP. Fabulous idea. Yeah. Transition meetings, all that. Yeah. 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 And it's just animated and it's pretty easy to digest, but you can't watch that film and not realize of course, it's better for Oliver, but it's better for everyone else in that school system. All right. So I'm going to now take us into the tough stuff. Okay. How, what about the kiddo who is so overwhelmed in a classroom of 20, sometimes many more kids and is melting down and having significant behaviors? Mm-hmm. I'm going to borrow from the words of Jamie Burke. So Jamie, if you're listening, you, I might get this right. I might not get it right exactly, but Jamie's a person, a friend of mine with autism. And, um, I'm just going to use a different example, but, um, the lunchroom was 
really, really, really overwhelming for him. Mm-hmm. And I started to think that maybe the lunchroom is the exception to my rule around inclusion because he was getting kind of quite ill. He didn't want to be the noises or whatever. Mm-hmm. And he typed to me, no, teach me to be in this environment. Mm. I want to learn to be here. And the only way to learn to be here is to be here. And it was his insistence on, yeah, this is difficult for sure. And we had to figure out all sorts of stay put supports for him. So Jamie would dart out and leave and things of that nature. And Mm -hmm. we had to figure out how do we make sure that he is comfortable And he has all the supports available to him anytime he needs it in the lunch space, because he said to me, if I don't learn how to do this now, when will I learn how to do this? Yeah. And, you know, it was just one of those moments where it was like, yeah, of course, of course, you know? Mm -hmm. So the same is true for kids who are quote unquote overwhelmed in classrooms. They need strategies. They need supports. No one said just throw them in and hope it works. But what you want to do is have about a hundred stay put supports so that when, and if they need different supports, they can receive them anything from headphones to a peer, to a fidget, to a place to walk around in the back to like, you know, you name it, mm-hmm. you want to have those at the ready. And then the thing is we find out it's not just the kid with autism. Mm-hmm. so overwhelmed in that space. So we come to find out because the kid with autism is doing such a good job of letting us know how overwhelming this room is. We realize there are all kinds of ways to reduce stressors in that environment. And then it's better for everybody. Yeah. And I would say this is one of those perfect examples, Barb, where it's in my mind, instantly complex, meaning as you would talk to your followers about where are you in the storm? Where are you in the peak? So we generalize it and say the kid's not ready for the classroom or they get overwhelmed by the classroom. Well, sometimes the kid's overwhelmed before they get to school. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the kid's overwhelmed because they had 300 hours of therapy that morning before they came to the classroom. Mm-hmm. This is their, you know, 300th transition. Sometimes they're doing fine in the classroom until it, you know, is too much for everybody because we're flashing lights, singing songs and rushing to get our coats on to go outside. So for me, it's like, you can't just generalize it and say from start to finish Monday through Friday, beginning of the day, end of the day, all lumped together is too much. Mm -hmm. There's a point at which it became too much. So if it's too much to begin with this, probably everywhere is too much for that kid. Mm -hmm. Meaning they ride the red train, right? To use our, our analogy, Barb. And so then I go, okay, in that instance, I would say we got to remove some barriers. Just what Julie was just saying. I got to reduce some stressors and guess what? Everybody's going to be happier if I do that. Right. Then I go, well, what if it is, they're kind of doing okay. And I can see them escalating. Oh, okay. Then what's our in-stay support for co-regulating? What's our, uh, in the moment support to teach self-regulation, which is not the same as impulse control. Like, so that's for me, the complexity. I can't just say, generally it's what Julie said. We're wrong when we say you have to be ready for a a setting. We're wrong when we say, um, wait till you can do these skills till you have access because it is your right, not a rite of passage. Mm-hmm. And then we got to get smart team. We got to think of this as bi-directional. What I do is going to impact them. What they do is going to impact me. Okay. And there's 20 other humans in here. Mathematically, we're all impacting each other. So what's our plan? And sometimes we don't go in with a plan. The plan is just to teach ELA or to do circle time with the kid there and go, okay, he's here. She's here. Yeah. They're here. The plan needs to be, What are the supports? And to Julie's point about Jamie, if you can, if the child's old enough and has some sort of way to reliably communicate with you, um, I mean, they have many ways to communicate. You just may not know them. Um, Involve them in the problem solving. But we sit around at tables figuring out what to do to kids, Mm -hmm. not with kids. So it's all that for me is just really um, inviting conversation and looking at barriers what skills have to be taught to Julie's point the, Jamie said, teach me how to be here. Teach me what to do when I feel like this. Okay. 
So that's kind of where I would start. Yeah. And there's a few things. I mean, one is I, I love the, your statement of it's a right, not a rite of passage. Hmm. I just want to highlight that for a second. And then the other thing I wanted to highlight is just that ripple effect is not just a ripple effect within the classroom or the school, even, or the community, but it's also in time because if, you know, if we have children who are included from birth, like you said, Julie, that we're going to have situations that aren't overwhelming Mm. to everybody as we get older and we're going to have inclusive communities as adults, which is our entire goal. (laughs) Inclusive jobs and inclusive places to socialize and we don't have to life. Yeah. And now what we're doing is we're segregating and then all of a sudden they're 18 or 21, depending on how long that people are in school. And then, okay, now you're included. Yeah. Now figure it out. (laughs) Right. And they have no friends and they have no connections and no one knows how to support them. I mean, even like in Christy's example about, she said they're singing songs and flashing lights to mean to transition. So she just threw that in there. But what she means is we have all these structures in schools that make no sense to, you know, most people. And, but yet they become part of the, the experience yeah. of being in yeah, school. Cause we learn it. We, we you learned know, we're it. there, we're included. So we learn the, the social norms. That's right. And so I'll give an example of bubble in the mouth. Barbie, have you ever had heard like it was no, a tell her the spoon in the pot. She won't know that one. Oh, okay. So yeah, I can <laughs> combine them. So in New York, uh, where I live, they've got a lot of cute sayings. Some of them are a little weird, but um, a lot of times when kids are quiet, they're supposed to keep a bubble in their mouth and spoons in the pot means your hands in your lap. And it was oh, a person with autism, right? <laughs> Nana's really. But what, what you think about is if you're a kid with autism and you're supposed to now remember that a bubble in my mouth means close my mouth spoons in the pot means keep my hands in my lap, you know, et cetera. It's very confusing. Yeah. And so it was a person with autism said, can we typed, can we skip the bubbles and the pots and just tell me what I'm supposed to do here? (laughs) And it was like, right. And it was just like, oh, and the teacher learned right away that we can just say you have options of how to be in the circle. Uh You can sit on your bottom or you can kneel, you can stand, or you can move as long as you can see the book all of a sudden. Oh, thank goodness. I have options. I don't have to pretend I have a bubble in my mouth. I don't have to do it so perfectly in a lockstep fashion. Um, Christy alluded to it before, but I have ADHD as an attribute and a superpower and school was pretty painful for me um, because it lacked joy and interest Mm. um, and it involves sitting still so, so much. And um, one of the things that Christy and I care a lot about is just thinking about the range of learners who need to move all day long and need different stimulus and need things to be engaging and exciting. And it's like, oh, wait, if you were just taking kids one by one to say, oh, you need to move, you need things engaging, exciting. We've got the whole class over here now. And so one of the surprising things about the work we do is that it's a lot about making instruction, exciting, relevant, interesting, and fun and building in choices all day long so that students can do what they need to do to be successful. I was just going to say, Julie, I'm, I hope she doesn't steal my thunder because I've been talking about, you know, I'm Debbie Downer over here with all this complexity. And I'm like, wait, we have the tip of the day. Oh. Choice is the friend of inclusion. That's all you have to do is offer choice. choice is the friend of inclusion. Yes. So as Julie was talking, I was like, oh, right. It doesn't matter if they can self-regulate. It doesn't matter if it's overstimulating. It doesn't matter if there's a spoon or a bubble. Right. If I just offer choice. Well, giving kids personal yes. agency. Yes, that right. Oh. right. The the end. You're so you're right, Barb. All the way back, it is simple. <laughs> I'm right. glad we got there, Christy. Woo! That was right. that took about thirty minutes, but we did it. We solved <laughs> all problems related to inclusion. Oh. Just offer choices. Yeah. You're done. Drop right. the mic. And I hope that's also a relief, actually, for teachers. I hope so. Because it's true. Feel like they have to just, uh, they have to teach, you know, kids with autism differently, or they have to teach to this behavior norm that doesn't make all that much sense anyway. 
Anyway, okay, I want to combine a couple of things. Okay. Okay, this is a challenge. <laughs> I want to combine hearing a little bit more about what you do for schools and districts. Like when you like, give me like what it looks like at the same time as we, of course, have overstretched staff, paraeducators, we have, you know, finances are not always huge budgets, but what do you guys do to help schools, districts, teachers paint the picture? And I'm going to start with saying something that I I don't know, Christy, if you're going to agree with this or not, but if you have, if it's a priority, you'll have a budget for it. So I'm going to start there. So we know in schools that there are budgets for lots of things. Um, and when it becomes a priority, schools can find the ways to support the work. Um, we come to schools in many different ways. So Christy, I guess I'll start big picture. A lot of times it's a superintendent, director of special ed principal who says to us, I need help in making my school more inclusive. Mm. And then at another end or another angle, sometimes it's a family of a child with autism who has litigated in a district. They Mm. now have the right to inclusion. And now we're supporting the school system to make it inclusive. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes it's teachers, sometimes it's families. I don't know. Those are our entry points, right, Christy? Yeah, I would say so. Mm -hmm. And then we work with them to dream about what's possible. And we actually do a lot of visualizing, like visually mapping what their structures look like. So if you can picture um, squares to be the general education classrooms and then circles to be a resource room, an autism room, uh, what are they called? There's so many fun names for these rooms, Uh, any kind of segregated, separated room. We draw those maps and we show what resources are Life skills rooms. That's that's it. Life skills rooms. I knew you were, I was trying to give you a chance, but. No, life skills rooms. So they'll show us these places and spaces and we draw the maps and say, let's look at what are the problems with the ways that are, that were currently configured. Then we support them to restructure. And then we provide all of the mindset, heart set and skill set, um, professional development so that everybody can support all kids in general education settings. And they kind of happen all at once. So meaning a lot of people think, oh, we're going to take three years and we're going to get ready to be inclusive. And we, we often say, um, you can't really train people to be inclusive until kids are in general education settings. And so it kind of all happens at once, the structural piece and the academic growth But what I think is most exciting is educators who join us on this journey become so excited about what's possible for human beings and become so excited about um, realizing that there's a better way to educate kids with disabilities besides separating and sorting them into separate rooms. And I would say just a couple of like specific or logistical things, Barb, and we can put these in the show notes so that people can reach us. We have a book through ASCD and uh, within it is all about uh, a systems change path. And so because we've been through this journey so many times in so many directions, and like Julie said, sometimes starting with families, sometimes starting with litigation, unfortunately, sometimes starting with vision and inspiration of a strong leader, um, Mm -hmm. starting with a teacher who is seen that they could do things differently. Um, And we can help teams move through uh, kind of a known path. Everybody will go a different direction. We'll come back and we'll go forward. We'll go sideways, but there is a known direction. There are known ingredients. And I think in a little bit, when we close up this, um, conversation, Julie can do a little read aloud of our definition of inclusion, because it'll really state what that mindset, heart set and skill set entails from a, like, um, inspirational perspective, and then just know that you can reach out to us. And we also know the specifics from creating maps to understand how kids and where kids and which kids are excluded to Mm -hmm. what kind of professional development and which people in your group need what. So we do support for paraprofessionals all the time. Sometimes you call them teaching assistants, educational assistants, all different kinds of beautiful names. 
it's kind of a thing that Julie and I, it brought us together and it's a, the kind of a common love. Um, and sometimes we do leadership training. How do leaders get adults to move through this complexity or to do it simply? So it's um, usually virtual professional development. It's uh, in real time and on demand. It's big, it's small. It's uh, what they need for just in time. Um based upon what we both know, which are called andragogical principles, how adults learn, how adults change. So we'll put that in the show notes. Yeah. And you have a summer institute that's coming. I mean, I can't believe we're talking about summer. It's actually, if people are listening. Yeah. The time of this recording, if you looked outside, you wouldn't know, right? I know, (laughs) but I'm so excited because you've asked me to be a part of it. And so I would love to have a little bit more uh, information on yeah let's do that let's tell them because that's the other way we help support school districts is through our annual summer leadership institute and i'll set it up and then julie will describe um its history and its robustness and why everyone needs to show up uh first and foremost uh we are excited that you'll be joining us this year barb um it is a virtual event every August. So regardless of when you're listening to this podcast, you can look at your calendar. And in August, usually the first week in August or near there, um, we have a three-day Summer Leadership Institute. And um, it's really for anyone and everyone. We love it when teams come. We love it when districts come as a group. By come, I mean gather on a a virtual platform Mm -hmm. and really get into how do we become an inclusive school? What is the law? What is the research? Why is this a social justice issue? And we have amazing presenters just like you, Barb, who will have niche conversations like how do we include uh, autistic students to people that are highly inspirational with lived experiences uh, that will join us and everything in between and around. So summer leadership every August. And Julie, do you want to tell a little bit about like, um, how you see it. I mean, you were the developer of it all these years uh, and and what we do as a result of it. Yeah. So just really quickly, I think it's our 15th year perhaps that we've had it. And it used to 16, be, um, we don't know, we don't know, but uh, it used to be at Syracuse University, you know, on a stage in a big, big ballroom and all these leaders from all over the world would come in person. And we've found it to be even more inclusive when we do it virtually. And what we do is it's three full days of learning um, with lots of options for people about what they want to learn and how they want to access the resources. But um, I think the very best way to approach it is to think about a whole district coming. And what that means is you can get a district license and then 12 people can come to the experience. And then everyone in your whole district gets access to all of it um, right after it's done. And so many districts are using this to be the change agent in their school system. So it's everything from what is inclusive education exactly to how do we change our systems and structures to what about this ABA classroom that we're thinking about off-ramping from to, Mm -hmm. right. And we just start to support everybody in that effort. Um, and it's become an incredible community of, of really skilled leaders that are doing this work in the world. And, um, we're right there with them every step of the way all year long too. So that is so fantastic. I really appreciate that you are out there and, um, I mean, really doing fighting for kids and fighting for our future to be more included. So I am so appreciative and I will make sure that so much of this information that we covered today is going to be in the show notes. Is there anything that you- I think we'll just close with that definition. If you don't, I mean, it sounds boring, but it it really encompasses everything we've talked about today. And I think we'll leave listeners with um, hope. And we always invite folks that as Julie reads to think about the words that she's saying and really what resonates with you. And um, this is sort of our creed or our manifesto or our commitment or our vows. And- um, it's part of anyone that's on this journey. Uh, it's our guidepost. It's it's what grounds us every day. Okay. I love that. Thank you. All right. Julie, do you need me to share my screen? We got it. Oh, I got it. I'm great. Okay. Uh, inclusive education means we no longer accept that separate classrooms, separate schools, and separate lives are in the best interest of any student. 
Separating people by ability disadvantages everyone. Belonging is a human need. Our educational system, practices, and spaces need to be reimagined. Inclusive education means every student is valued because of their strengths, gifts, and even challenges, as disability is simply diversity. Everyone benefits from meaningful participation and opportunities to learn grade level content with diverse peers. We must trust that all students come to us as incredible whole people who do not need to be fixed. Hmm. I'm going to, I don't even want to say anything after that. I just want to say thank you. And that was beautiful. Thank you for the work that you do. Thank you, Barb. Synergy Autism Podcast, where we bring research, information, and people together to best understand and love those with autism, also known as autistic individuals. Check out my website for lots of additional links, like my Facebook account, Instagram account, blogs that I have written, videos, and even courses that are both free and some that I have labored with some wonderful colleagues um, to produce just for you. And contact me with questions and ideas for future podcasts. I'm here. I'm listening. Till next time.